Our text this morning comes from 1 Peter, chapter 2, verses 4 through 10. This is the word of the Lord. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in scripture, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. The word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for this morning that we can gather together and worship at your feet Thank you for Christmas. Thank you for Christ and the gift that he has become to us. I pray that you would bless your word as it goes forth this morning, that you bless me to speak clearly, and that you would make your word fruitful in the hearts of my brothers and sisters. We commit all this to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So I've decided to title this sermon, How Not to Ruin Christmas. I realize some of you are thinking, well, it's too late for that. <laughs> but don't worry, I'm sure there'll be plenty of Christmases ahead uh, for you to mend your ways. And when I say Christmas, I don't mean so much uh, the day of Christmas, uh, but what God has done for us in Christmas. In our text, Peter talks chiefly of two things. God's gift to his people, and his people's rather poor response. Christ was the culmination of God's revelation to the Jewish people, and he was being laid for them as a chosen and precious cornerstone, as Peter uh, quoted from Psalm 118. And actually, that text is all over the New Testament. It's one of the most frequently uh, cited texts. But like spoiled children, most of God's children opened up this gift only to throw it back in his face. But for those who did receive him, he became righteousness. He became life. At the beginning of John's gospel, we read that Jesus came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believe in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. So before we consider this response, I want to look uh, first at this gift, at uh, God's gift of Christ in the Jewish context that Jesus or that Peter lays out in this chapter. So central to Peter's text is the idea of a cornerstone, as we get in verse 6. Peter again quoting here. For it stands in scripture, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a, a, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So at Christmas, we're celebrating God's laying of a cornerstone, chosen and precious. But first, well, what is a cornerstone? 
that's sort of lost on our, uh, on our time, our period where we just liquefy stone and lay a foundation with concrete. But at that time, you would have to go to a rock quarry. You would have to go exca excavate stone in order to uh, fit stones together for a foundation for whatever you were building. And one of the most important stones that you would uh, have to quarry would be the stone that would go under a corner, the corner of your house where the two walls met. As you can imagine, if you have two separate stones under these two walls, well, what's going to happen? That wall is going to slowly come apart, right? That wall is going to come apart, and then what's going to happen after that? Well, the roof is going to start coming apart, and then what's going to happen after that? Well, the house is going to cave in, and that's one way to ruin Christmas, is to have a caved-in house. So uh, it was essential that you found a good, solid, full stone uh, to put under the corner of your house. And so that is, that is a language that is being used here uh, from Isaiah and then Peter, is that Christ is that cornerstone. He is the most essential stone to the foundation of what God was building. In, uh, in another place in Corinthians, Paul uh, refers to Christ as the foundation. So it's really synonymous. We understand the word foundation. And so essentially, a cornerstone is the foundation. So Christ is a cornerstone, but a cornerstone for what? What was God building? And in our text, Peter alludes to two things, both uh, images drawn from the Old Testament. Christ is a cornerstone of the temple, of a new temple. And Christ is the cornerstone, symbolically, of the priesthood. He is the new high priest that presides over a, a new priesthood. So to begin, uh, Solomon's temple was a very important image or a very important building structure uh, in the context of uh, Israel. The temple was symbolic of God's presence with his people. So long as that temple stood... The people could call out to God, praying toward that temple, and God would answer them. God's presence dwelt there between the cherubim and the Holy of Holies. So God's presence was among his people. Uh, we're going to get to the sacrificial system, but uh, it was symbolic of God being with his people so that whatever his people faced, they had the Lord there with him or with them uh, to, to help them in times of need. Uh, when this temple had been completed in Solomon's time, uh, he prayed, he dedicated this prayer in this long, uh, in, in, first, in 1 Kings 8, uh, dedicating this temple to the Lord. And in the midst of that prayer, he just lists out scenario after scenario of when your people meet with famine, when there's no food in the land, uh, Lord, set your name on this temple so that your people can come in here and pray to you and that you would answer them, that you would send uh, food for them. Or when your people meet with a drought, when the heavens are stopped up, when there's no rain anymore, let your people pray toward this place, hear them, forgive them, and answer them. When your people are being devastated by other armies, by invaders, uh, let them come to this house and pray to, to you and answer them. So it was very symbolic of God uh, answers us through this temple. It was almost a way to enter into the ear of God. You go into the temple and you enter into the ear of God and you, you pray to him, you ask for, for help, and the Lord would answer him. So, so long as this temple stood, they had hope. But in the New Testament, Jesus declares himself to be better than Solomon. Something better than Solomon had come. In Christ, the foundation of a better temple was to be laid. A temple that was not made with stones quarried from the ground, but from living stones, from living souls, from men and women and children that the Lord would bring to himself and indwell with their spirit. So now he has a living temple that is founded in Christ Jesus. And in contrast to the old temple, this temple, 
would be permanent. So uh, the Lord actually answers Solomon after he dedicates the temple to him. Uh, and in 1 first, first Kings 9, which I just lost my place, First uh, Kings 9, the Lord answers him. And first he, he says, I've heard your prayer, and I will set my name upon this place. I will, I will uh, accordingly answer my people when they call to me. But it came with a caveat. It came with a condition. Starting in verse 9, he says, And as for you, if you will walk before me, as David your father walked, with integrity of heart and uprightness, doing according to all that I have commanded you, and keeping my statutes and my rules, then I will establish your royal throne over Israel forever, as I promised David your father, saying, You shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. But if you turn aside from me, you or your children, and do not keep your command or my commandments and my statutes, that I have set before you, but go and serve other gods and worship them, then I will cut off Israel from the land that I have given them, and the house, the temple that was just built, that I have consecrated for my name, I will cast out of my sight. And Israel will become a proverb and a byword among all people, and this house will become a heap of ruins. Everyone passing by it will be astonished and will hiss, and they will, they will say, why has the Lord done thus to this land and to this house? And then they will say, because they have abandoned the Lord their God who brought their fathers out of the land of Egypt and laid hold on other gods and worshiped them and served them. Therefore, the Lord has brought all this disaster upon them. And as we know Israel's history, this temple would be destroyed. Northern kingdom would be taken away, and then the Babylons would come and get Judah and the southern kingdom and decimate the temple, level it to the ground. And they would, of course, rebuild it under Ezra and Nehemiah. And then later, after Jesus ascends and the gospel goes forth, then another imperial power, the Romans, would surround the second temple and decimate it. God's people kept going astray. This temple... God's presence with his people kept being removed from them. But this new temple established in Christ would be permanent, for its foundation is eternal. Christ who died lives and he shall never die again. So it's an eternal foundation, and so the temple built upon it is good. God's dwelling remains permanently with man in Christ. And if you actually fast forward to Revelation 21 where you have John, the apostle, seeing all these, these visions, uh, and then he's taken to this high mountain to watch the new Jerusalem descend from heaven. And as he's surveying this new city, one thing he notices is that there's no temple. There's no physical temple in the city. And it's because the Lord is the temple, the Lord Almighty and the Lamb, and God shall dwell with his people in a most personal way. So Christ is the cornerstone of a new temple, and Christ is also the symbolic cornerstone of a new priesthood that actually operates within that temple. That's in verse 5. Believers are being built up as a spiritual house, Peter writes, to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Christ Jesus. So the Old Testament priesthood was specifically given to the tribe of Levi. The Levites were the priests that were uh, set apart by God to mediate between his people and himself. They were to offer sacrifices on behalf of uh, their fellow uh, Jews. 
Uh, so if you sinned, you would sacrifice. You would bring a sacrifice in. If you uh, wanted to uh, fulfill your vows, if you made some vow to the Lord, you would bring an offering to the priest who would then sacrifice it on, on your behalf. And if you wanted to have a communion meal with the Lord, you would go to the temple and you would uh, offer that uh, to the priest. And so the, the priest was integral to the Jew's identity of being religious. If the, if the Jew wanted to interact with the Lord, he had to go through a priest, through this intermediary. It was uh, so deeply ingrained in their cultural mindset. They needed an intermediary between God and them. I think so much, uh, so much so that if you go to Judges, a really uh, disheartening book of the Bible where uh, God's people just continually goes astray, and finally at the end where you get some of the most gnarly stories in the Old Testament, which it's, you, almost, you almost can't uh, deliver those, those stories from the pulpit. Uh, but there's, there's one story of Micah and the Levite. Uh, so this, this young man who apparently uh, steals silver from his, his mother and then confesses to her, and she says, oh, okay, you know, here, you can have it back. Take the silver, go make a uh, idol. Go, go to a silversmith and make a god for yourself. And so Micah goes, uh, gives this silver to the silversmith, comes back with his little household god, uh, and he anoints his, his children as priests before him. But then uh, a Levite happens to be coming through the town. So he, he grabs him and he says, what are, you're a Levite? You, you can come and live with me and you could be a Levite before me. You could be my priest between my, my, my little God and me. And then at the end of the story, Micah proclaims, now I know that the Lord will prosper me because I have a Levite as a priest. Like it's just so deeply written into their mindset that they have, that as long as I have this priest between me and God, I'm good to go. Even if I'm committing idolatry, even if I'm fashioning graven images and completely living a life uh, out, of, out, of, uh, out of the way of the Lord, uh, he is a priest, and so he's, he's secure there. I think a, a modern parallel, if you take Italian mobster movies, which I don't endorse, but uh, in every Italian mobster movie, there's this scene of this mob boss who's just destroying people's lives, you know, uh, hitting kneecaps in and just what, doing what he's doing. And then he, he's, he, there's a confessional scene. He's sitting in confession with a Catholic priest and he just unloads his conscience. Yeah, I killed three people yesterday and you know, confesses it all and then he walks away happy and at peace. <laughs> so that same sort of uh, priest mentality of as long as I have this, this priest between me and God who's, who's absolving me of my sin, I, I'm good to go, I'm reconciled. Uh, so the priesthood meant that man could be at peace with his make, maker. It meant that man could be reconciled to God, that man could be religious. In Christ, God gives us, gives us this access in perfection. We are all made priests in him. He is the priest who went into the most holy of holies and brought a perfect sacrifice of himself and offered that on our behalf for the sins of the world and then ascended to intercede always on our behalf before our God. And in him, we are now all made priests. Priests, we are, we are Christians. If you are a believer in Christ, you are united to him and you are made one with him. And now we all can offer uh, all of our sacrifices before him without going to another intermediary. We don't have to go to a temple. We don't have to bring a bloodied sacrifice. We can offer up our sacrifices of praise right here. There's a reason why our church services don't smell like blood. Whereas in the Jewish era, worship was tied up with blood. But here, we don't have that. We get to offer up our, our sacrifices of praise. We get to offer up our services, our worship service, our psalm sings, our feasting, our hospitality. We get to offer it all up directly to God through Christ. 
So if you're a Jew living in Peter's day or in Jesus' day, this is all rather important, right? This would be a pretty big gift. The founding of a new temple, one better than Solomon's, one which would never be destroyed, one which would ensure God's presence among you forever. No need to worry any longer about Babylon or the Romans or any other imperial power of coming in and destroying that temple. And the establishment of a new priesthood where full and final reconciliation would be available to you through Christ Jesus. No need for continued sacrifices or guilt offerings or the intercession of an often corrupt priesthood. I mean, you look at the Old Testament priesthood, it was thoroughly corrupt. They're often the, the object of rebukes of the prophets because the priests would uh, be stealing from, uh, stealing from the sacrifices that were being brought before them. But as we know, the reception of this gift was rather poor, especially among the Jewish leaders. That's what Peter has in mind here. If you go to verses 7 and 8, Peter writes, So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. So I said the Jewish leaders, and of course they weren't the only ones. They were, there was a whole mob, a whole crowd of men and women and even children saying, crucify him. You know, that the Pharisees had stirred up at Jesus' crucifixion. But the language here, this, this phrase of the builders is often used to refer to them elsewhere. And so if, uh, if you think of the parable of the tenants, where our Lord is addressing the Pharisees directly, and he brings up this story, an owner uh, builds a vineyard, and digs a vineyard out, and rents it out to tenants, and then uh, the next season he sends for a crop. He sends his servants there, and these tenants uh, send them away, beat them and send them away, and don't give uh, any of the fruitage from, um, from the vineyard. And so then he decides, well, I'm going to send my son. You know, you know how the story goes. Uh, he sends a son, and these uh, brilliant tenants think, well, if we kill him, we can have the vineyard. And of course, uh, they end up killing him, and Jesus looks at them and says, what do you think the owner of the vineyard is going to do? And they answer, well, he's going to come and destroy those tenants, which is ironic because, of course, they are the tenants. And then Jesus quotes this passage saying, well, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The stone that you guys are going to reject and are rejecting will be the cornerstone. And then more clearly, Acts 4, verse 11 uh, this is Peter now before the council. Uh, they, they, they brought in John and Peter because they'd been preaching Jesus and they had said, well, stop preaching Jesus. And of course, they're not going to. Uh, but Peter's standing before them, filled with the Holy Spirit, and he addresses them. Uh, and in verse 11, he says, this Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone and there is salvation in no one else for there's no other name under heaven given among men by which we may be saved. So in New Testament language and Old Testament, the builders were these, these Jewish leaders. Uh, and it's the idea of bringing the word. It's a pretty neutral term. I mean, even uh, Paul calls himself a builder. Uh, he's, he's a builder. He's building upon the foundation of Christ. But uh, these, these builders come in and they, they build up God's people by teaching. 
And so these Jewish leaders uh, that, that were meant to build up God's people who sat in the seat of Moses, uh, whom Jesus spoke of, spoke of saying, you know, obey what they say, obey what they say because they sit in the seat of Moses, but don't do as they do because they're hypocrites. These Jewish leaders were, were hypocrites. They knew the word of God, but they hated the word of God. They honored God with their lips, but their hearts were far from them. And for these builders, Christ became a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stubbed their toe, in other words. They tried to kick at this stone. And they took a tumble because the stone didn't move. And the image isn't different. We have Christ as the cornerstone and then Christ as the stone of stumbling, but it's one image. You imagine uh, God laying his foundation of his temple, the cornerstone right there, and then you have these Pharisees coming up and trying to kick it, kick it and move this foundation. They have their own temple. They have their own uh, thing that they're, they're uh, profiting off of, and they don't like this new temple that God is, is being laid in, so they're kicking at it, and they're kicking at it, and they just fall and break upon it because it will not move, because God has laid it. So it became for them a rock of stumbling because they tried to move it and they couldn't. It was wasted energy and ultimately it was their destruction. As again with the, the parable of the tenants, the, the vineyard would be uh, taken from them and they themselves would be destroyed. Their temple would be destroyed in 70 AD by the Romans uh, and their priesthood would be taken away from them. And even to this day, uh, Judaism doesn't have a temple. They don't have a temple and priests have become a cultural relic. So you have rabbis. Rabbis have a prevalent place in Judaism now, but for the most part, Cohen's, uh, which is, would be their priests, uh, it's more of just a symbolic presence there. They don't have real roles anymore because there's not a sacrificial system. There's no, you, there, there's no bloodied sacrifices. There's no temple. There's no altar. And that's the judgment of God upon them. So now I want to ask, well, why? Why did they stumble? Why did they reject God's cornerstone? Why did they respond this way to God's gift? Why did they ruin their own Christmas? I think scripture gives us a number of reasons. One of the, one of the first ones is busyness, simply busyness. These Jews were too busy for Christ. You get the, the parable of the sower. There's different seed sown among different soils, and one of those soils, soils is the seed with, or sorry, with the soil with thorns in it. So the seed would take root. The, these uh, Jews would hear the word of God. They would believe it, but they're just too busy. They're, they're too uh, swallowed up in the cares and pleasures of this world. And so that they, they never mature. They're too busy for it. And there's a parable of the wedding feast. So a king hosts a wedding feast for his son and sends out to the guests to have them in, and uh, the response is, well, we're all too busy. We have, we have things to tend to. I have a farm. I just got a cow. I really have to take care of the cow. I can't come to your wedding feast. Sorry about that. So they were too busy for Christ. And another reason, uh, simply greed. These builders had uh, built something splendid, and they want it for themselves. Uh, the temple had become a den of thieves and robbers, and they were profiting off it. They were profiting off the sacrifices of the Jewish people. They built a palace, and when the prince came to live in it, they locked the doors against him. They didn't want him coming in. They wanted to have it for themselves. So simply greed caused them to, to uh, reject what God had given to them. I think most notably, however, uh, Scripture gives the reason of self-righteousness. Self-righteousness, they really thought they were something. 
In fact, the, the word or the, the title Pharisee comes from uh, the Hebrew word parash, which means to separate. So they were the separated ones. They were the ones that were removed from everybody else. They had this air of exclusivity. We are the Pharisees. We are the holy ones. We are the ones removed from everybody else who uh, are just far better than everybody else. They had this self-righteousness about them that blinded them. After all, they had tassels. <laughs> they had phylacteries. They, had, uh, they made long, eloquent prayers in the public square. They were honored wherever they, weren't, wherever they went, uh, they might not have been liked, but they were reverenced. They set a law around the law of God. So they had hand-washing rules and probably social distancing rules and cleanliness laws. And uh, they had the whole honor God over your parents. It could be Coram. It could, here's, here's something I, I, I uh, need to give to my parents. This is, I need to take care of my parents uh, but you can call it quorum, and you can give it to God instead, and, and you're absolved of that duty of taking care of your parents. There are a number of Sabbath laws that they uh, enforced. Uh, most of the run-ins that Jesus had with the Pharisees were on the Sabbath. He would be healing. He would be having mercy on people. He would be giving people rest from ailments that had afflicted them for so long, and these Pharisees hated that. There's uh, these stories about uh, if your house caught on fire on the Sabbath then you had to simply let it burn because carrying water to put it out was carrying a burden. It would be breaking the Sabbath. And so you weren't allowed to put out a fire if your house happened to catch on fire. And so you could just have to watch your whole, you had to rest. You know, you had to watch your whole house burn down because they had this skewed view of what it meant to observe the Sabbath. And this self-righteousness led them to look down on Jesus. He was to them a rube, he was a hick, he was a rustic. They would say nothing good came, comes out of Galilee, nothing good comes out of that area, those guys are, are weird. They called him a drunkard. John the Baptist came neither drinking and, nor eating, and they said he has a demon. And the Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they called him a glutton, a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. They were the fulfillment of what Isaiah prophesied about them. In Isaiah 65, verse 5, there were a group of people who said to God, Keep to yourself, do not come near me, I am too holy for you. So they literally looked at Jesus, the holy one, the righteous one, God incarnate, and said, ah, I'm too holy for you. Keep your distance. I don't want to catch whatever you have. So at Christmas, God gave to his people his best gift, his only begotten son who was to be their Messiah, the cornerstone of a new temple, the high priest of a new priesthood, the fulfillment of everything that they presided over, every, everything that they were waiting for. And when they saw him, they scoffed at him. They were too holy for him. They had no need of him. They thought of, them, of themselves as sufficiently righteous. And what need have they of a savior? Romans 10, uh, Paul writes out their indictment. And he says it most clearly. In verse 2, he says, For I bear them witness, uh, his, his Jewish brothers, I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness for everyone who believes. So they were so righteous in their own eyes that they missed what God had for them. They were the fulfillment of Ecclesiastes, of being overly righteous. They were so righteous that they were wicked. 
But of course, self-righteousness did not die with them, unfortunately. Uh, It is a perennial issue. The human condition has not changed even after 2,000 years of gospel light. Uh, So those are the Pharisees, and uh, maybe a modern parallel would be the Wokies, the woke crowd. They are our modern Pharisees. So it's in one sense a modern parallel, uh, but in another sense, they couldn't be more distant from each other. You know, if you take uh, our left-wing uh, woke crowd and put, it, uh, put them back uh, in Jesus' time, the Pharisees would have nothing to do with them. They would be more like the gross and unclean Gentiles to them. And it's true on several accounts. I mean, they would have been like the Greeks, which the Greeks were uh, a very... Uh, unfortunate bunch, a uh, very notorious bunch. And we, we have the letters uh, that Paul wrote to the Corinthians, and the Corinthians were uh, wrapped up in a lot of really uh, bad stuff. In fact, there was a verb made out of their name, uh, to Corinthiasdomai, in, in Greek meant to prostitute yourself. Uh, Corinth was so notorious for uh, that sin that they created a verb out of their name. It's like sodomy in the same sense. Uh, and so in many ways... Uh, our modern Pharisees are very much like that crowd, like the Greeks. But this only goes to show that self-righteousness and the sinful heart can really make a righteousness out of anything. You have one extreme of Pharisees uh, creating a righteousness out of being exclusive, right, of being too holy. They're too holy for everybody. And the other side, our modern Pharisees are so radically inclusive And it's their righteousness. So the Pharisees became so holy that they missed the greater things of love and justice. They strained a gnat and swallowed a camel. They set up their standard of what holy holy is, and so they despised the holiness of God. And the Wokies have become so loving. Of course, they love, you know, God is love. Love your neighbor. Love does no wrong. And then they draw this out in such a way that completely contradicts God's love. That so completely contradicts God's righteousness. They have become so loving that all they do is hate. In the name of love, they riot. They destroy people's livelihoods. We know this. And in the name of love, they have become bigots. So just as God's salvation met with contempt from the Pharisees, so also the woke crowd, Christmas has become an offense. But in a different sense. Again, it's offensive because it's too or exclusive. It's not loving enough. It's a salvation they don't want because it it denounces Muhammad. It denounces Buddha. It denounces adultery and abortion and homosexuality. It calls men to turn from their sins and come and be forgiven and have life. Christ is simply too demanding of them, too dogmatic, too mean, really, too rude. In a word, I think Christ is too Christian. And of course, we're not immune to this. Again, this, is, this just shows, shows the versatility of our own hearts. We can create a righteousness out of anything. And I think it's, um, even our day, the silly examples of masks and vaccines and social distancing, I poke at that, but we can create righteousness of either side of it. We can create a righteousness about wearing a mask. We can create a righteousness about not wearing a mask. We can create a righteousness about taking a vaccine and take, making a righteousness of not taking a vaccine. It's, it's so, um, our heart is just ever at it. And so we have to be, uh, be careful of it. We have to beware lest we become like the Pharisees. 
The Pharisees, for, for the Pharisees, Christ isn't holy enough, and so they rejected the cornerstone. And for the woke crowd, Christ isn't loving enough, so again, they reject God's gift to man. They are both too obsessed with themselves. They ruin their Christmas because they've established their own righteousness. They've rejected the gift of God. But for those who do believe, who celebrate Christmas with humble and grateful hearts, who think much of Christ and little of ourselves, who esteem Christ of more worth than all the world combined, then what what does Peter say about believers? Well, he says the honor belongs to us. The honor of this cornerstone, the honor of being a part of this new temple, the honor of being a part of this new priesthood. And then in verses 9 and 10, our last verses, Peter writes, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So by way of conclusion, I want to exhort you guys from these verses. I want, you, I want to exhort you guys to be all about the glory of Christ, all about the love of God, all about the mercy of your Father, which means being all about Christmas. Let it wean your eyes off yourself, off your own pitiful righteousness, off, uh, off of whatever works you have or whatever goodness you have or whatever uh, good looks you have or anything you have to boast in. Let it wean your eyes off of yourself and onto Christ and be all about him. With both these two groups, with these radically self-righteous individuals, what happens is that you forget what God has done for you. The Pharisees were a part of a people that God had blessed so much. Their lineage goes back to a nation that was in Egypt that, that nobody cared for, a nation that nobody cared about, that was afflicted by this superpower, and the only one that was mindful of them was God. And God would remember his people. He would deliver them out of Egypt, bring them out with a strong hand, and plant them in a land and give them so many blessings. And the history of Israel goes that they they, they kept forgetting. They kept forgetting what God had done for them. And as they forgot, they kicked against God. They forgot God's blessing. They became self-righteous in themselves. And they kicked against him. And our generation is no, uh, no different. We are a nation and a civilization mightily blessed by God. For the most part, we come from the Gentiles. Might be, some of us might descend from Abraham, but for the most part, we descend from the Gentiles. We, we are from the, the Greeks. We are from uh, the Romans, from uh, the, the Germans. And yet God took us from those groups, cleaned us up, cleaned our ancestors up, and made us holy and gave us a nation Uh, allowed us to plant a nation that loves God and that puts him at the center. But we have, uh, over the last 100, 200 years, began to turn against God. We begin to see those blessings and account them to our own hand, saying that we've done it, we've done it, we're good. And we've forgotten how God has blessed us, and now we are growing fat and we are kicking. So we must guard against this by remembering what we were and what God has made out of us. We must remember these things and then praise him. We ought to give God's gifts of life and righteousness our highest praise. As Peter said, we are drawn out of darkness in order that we might proclaim the excellencies of him who saved us. 
And I'll end with Jeremiah 9.24. He said, But let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth, for in these things I delight, declares the Lord. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for your mercies upon us. Thank you for saving us out of our own sins. Thank you for saving our ancestors and uh, making us your children. Thank you for bringing us into your temple founded in Christ Jesus and uh, bringing us into your priesthood uh, with the high priest of Christ presiding over us. Please make us a humble and grateful people. May our lips sing your praise and not our own, Lord. Guard us against every self-righteousness. Father God, we repeat to you the words that our Lord taught us to say, singing. The early Christians were accused of being political traitors. The accusation was that, quote, these Christians all do contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, one Jesus, Acts 17.7. Upon hearing the apostles' teaching, the pagans concluded that Jesus wouldn't fit politely in some corner of the tapestry of human expression. They realized what many Christians today don't which is that the preaching of Jesus is in diametric opposition to earthly kingdoms, claims to sovereignty and ultimate authority. Christ's gospel isn't intended to peddle in tandem with earthly kingdoms. It subdues kingdoms under it, Psalm 47.3. The gospel of King Jesus isn't content to simply run parallel with other kings. Rather, the kings of the earth shall bring their glory and honor unto Christ, Revelation 21.24. The good news of great joy, which, of which the angel choir sang over Bethlehem, isn't intended to stay confined as a private and deeply held personal belief. To be exact, this good news is to be taught to all nations, and they're expected to obey everything which Christ commanded, Matthew 28, 19 through 20. That's the gospel which this meal heralds. It tells of Christ's kingdom, a kingdom which shall have no end where justice and truth reign, where sins are passed over, envies are dispelled, evil is cast out, a kingdom before which every other kingdom is obliged to bow, and every earthly ruler must do homage. Here we each lay down our claim to some imagined sovereignty over our personal sliver kingdoms. Here we confess that we are citizens of the heavenly Zion. Here we proclaim our fealty and invite the kings and nations to join us in communion with our heavenly Lord, the Prince of glory and our King of love. So come in faith and welcome to Jesus. Let us pray. Our God and Father, we give thanks for this meal, which proclaims to us and to all the heavenly host and to all the nations that Christ is King, that the body that was broken on Calvary is now lifted up here as King of the world. We give thanks for it all. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. The charge is this. If your house is anything like mine, the trash can in the garage is full of crumpled up wrapping paper and boxes and those little plastic things that like, uh, like are basically made out of like tungsten steel that keep the toys stuck to the box. Yes, the trash can is full of all the wrapping paper, all the boxes, all the gift boxes, all the tissue paper, the dishes have been cleaned, they've been put away for next year. And my exhortation to you is this. There is a cornerstone in the middle of your home. If your home is a Christian home, there is a cornerstone in the middle of it. 
and it's Christ. So make sure that you don't try to let all the wrapping paper, all the rubbish of resentment and disappointment and envy and jealousy or post-Christmas blues get, uh, leave it lying about. Make sure all of that, all the bitterness, envy, disappointment, and jealousy, make sure it gets carted out as well. Because the message we proclaim is one of great joy, not one of great glumness. So rejoice and haul out the rubbish of sin. And hear with believing hearts the benediction of your Father God. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. To God our Savior, who alone is wise, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and forever. And amen.